Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Boss Podcast, a weekly podcast aimed at sharing some of the best talks from over a decade of boss conferences. This week, we welcome Rob Castaneda, CEO of Service Rockets, with his talk looking at things great software companies don't have to do. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Rob speaks about the three mistakes he made that almost killed his company as he grew it from a bedroom in Sydney, Australia to an operation in eight offices with over 250 rocketeers and 4,000 active customers. He never took funding for Service Rocket, but realised that building a board he was afraid of would be a key part in helping the business grow. Service Rocket exists to help software companies ensure that customers use their products, a proven route to ensuring repeat business. In this talk, Rob will share some of the mistakes that even the best software businesses make in getting their customers to use the software they've actually purchased with the big caveat being that you don't have to make the same mistakes. Also, Rob will share a few tips you can implement today to ensure your customers are successful and content. Happy listening. Can I get a show of hands on who here is an entrepreneur who's building their own business? And, no, (laughs) hey, we're here, right? And uh, have not taken any money, okay. So I'm going to talk about software adoption, because that's what I've been doing for 15 years, a little bit longer, and also talk about my journey along the way. Uh, It's been a a fun journey uh, at that. So a little bit about me. I founded Service Rocket. uh, Actually, it was called Customware back in 2001. So I'm the founder and CEO. uh, And uh, the, the most popular open source rock opera of 2016 I was a part of. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, there we go. All right. So I, I grew up in, uh, in Sydney uh, in the, uh, and I tried to find a picture from the 80s of what Australia looked like, and I guess that was it. And uh, as I was growing up, my first job was in a company called IKEA. And uh, it was actually washing a truck uh, that my dad drove, and then I managed to get a job in the warehouse and uh, throwing things on the, on, the, on the trolleys for customers. Who's had a very fun time at IKEA? Yeah? You know, it, it came full circle because I was always fascinated with the systems. You know, what I learned from there is really the systems, right? Uh, the fonts. Uh, fonts always are very nice at IKEA, right? The ice creams. But, but also, if you look at the model of how they do furniture and how they do logistics and compare that with the do it yourself SaaS business. Right, where customers are taking software and deploying it, there's actually a lot of parallels in that. So one of the largest businesses in the world. Uh, I studied at UTS in Sydney. There's no one here from there. And uh, for an internship, I ended up at a company called Borland in Sydney. And uh, a few people clapping. It's still around, I think. Um, and during that internship, I, uh, I got to do some training and I got to do support. And this is 1997. And on the support desk, Delphi is the hit uh, favorite product of everybody. I'm the new kid on the block. I get all the crap that they've acquired over the years to support. 
right? This big long list of it. Every time a support case came in, I had to find the boxes with the disks, find an operating system, do, do the whole install to answer a question. And then one day, mysteriously, this CD arrived from the US with a thing on it called Latte. And none of the Delphi and C++ people wanted it. It landed in my lap. And it was a beta version of JBuilder in Java. And my world was totally open from there. So I stayed at Borland for a couple of years in training and support and pre-sales. Uh, did a little bit of R&D, and then I, I moved across to Silicon Valley when I was 20 years old. And uh, on the top left, that's the picture of the actual rental car that I got on the first day that I landed in the US as a 20-year-old. As a right? And I did once drive on the wrong side of the road. Right? So does anyone here know the Bay Area, but it was back in 2000, was totally booked out all the hotels. I was teaching a course in Cupertino in an old Apple building that came back to Apple. And the hotel they put me in was on the other side of the Santa Cruz Mountains. So I had to go on Highway 17 as a 20-year-old driving one of those on the wrong side of the road. Anyway, so the other memory I have is I used to go around the country teaching training courses like this five days at a time for BEA systems, uh, for web methods, and all the enterprise Java crowd. So, uh, so what happened? Uh, those two things happened on the left, and I had to go back home. So uh, familiar story. So I, lo I love that you're having a baby and get married and makes it all happen, right? So, um, so what happened was that I called up BEA and Web Methods locally in Australia and said, hey, I'm a trainer. Have you got any work? And they said, yeah, we've got lots of work. So I started teaching the same courses that I was teaching in Australia, in the US, in Australia. And I needed to build them, so I created a company. And that's how I created the company. Um, in Australia, VC, I think, would probably stand for vice captain of the cricket team. Right? It was a good cricket team back then. Not so now. Let's, uh, next, next slide. <laughs> OK. Um, as of today, uh, 20, 15 years later, our paid up capital, I, I stole this from NetSuite in our uh, balance sheet. We've put a total of $191.59 into the company. That's our funding so far. So that's in dollars and cents, not in millions or in thousands. Um, and as we've done different restructures and things over time, we've had to put an extra 100 bucks in, and exchange rates have eroded some of our capital. Okay. So the other interesting thing is that we're teaching these courses for, for these large enterprise software companies. And uh, over time, we had built this open source stack of technology to run our projects with Bugzilla, with Mantis, with all these fancy things. And uh, on the next block was a company called Atlassian that I just started. And they had this thing called Jira. So we said, OK, let's use that. And we met with Mike and Scott. And uh, we started using that. And bit by bit, we replaced our stack with their products uh, to a point where they used to send customers across to us to you know, sort out their products. Right? Hey, I need help installing Jira back in 2003, 2004. And at that stage, our name was, uh, our name was Customware. So a couple of years ago, Chris did a talk about Wistia. I think RJ Metrics actually did a talk as well about their branding. And I've got some, some funny ones here. You, you will not stop laughing. So we were called Customware Asia Pacific because the US company that I was working for when I moved back to get married was called Customware. And what better name to call it than Customware Asia Pacific? So, uh, uh, so, the, so we grew up uh, next to Atlassian. And an interesting experience, there's a, a, combination of many things happening, right? The world is going cloud. 
they have more or less an IKEA model of buy it yourself and, and take it. Um, the attitude in general was, hey, if you like it, install it, and away you go. If you don't like it, don't buy it. And customers were trying to get all this stuff uh, you know, moving and working together. So uh, over that time, we, we've grown, uh, and I'll go into a little bit more detail on, on some of those things, and, and I'll let some questions steer some of it. Um, it's been an amazing journey working in the shadows of a giant unicorn uh, at the time, because things move so quick, and nobody knows what is going to happen. So in one day, you're in a meeting room, and we're five people, and they're four people. A year later, we're 12, and they're 10. A year later, we might be 20, and they're 100. And things just explode, right? And uh, for, for me, along the way, we've grown offices in, in different countries. And the biggest thing that I've learned along the way is to, to listen to my voice and create a culture and create a company where my team want to belong. When you're growing a company in the shadows of another company, it's very hard, and you have to really remember that, to, to take care of your own culture and your own company. It's, uh, it's very easy to be you know, hidden behind what's there, right? And Atlassian has an amazing PR machine, right? So there's a lot of, a lot of noise going out there, a lot of, uh, um, a lot of press, a lot of PR, a lot of blogs, a lot of advertising. And so for us, it was about defining our culture. And rather than, than thinking about you know, some of the fun things, the, the best definition I've ever seen is this one, which is what, what is the worst behavior that you're willing to tolerate as a leader? Because the hardest thing to do as a, as a CEO is to fire somebody. And so where is that line? So when everything's good, Culture is great, right? When that line gets crossed, that's when your character comes to play. And as a CEO, most of the time, you're busy doing three out of the 25 things that you're supposed to do. And most of the time, when you have to take action or, or change something culturally, it's a distraction to what you actually want to do. Um, so kind of a very key message for me in that one. So uh, looking about some of our branding, and, and so remember, I came back to Australia. I created this company. We were called Customer Asia Pacific. Um, in 2008, 2009, the financial crisis happened, and we moved to the US. So what, what a great way to create a US company name than call it Customer Asia Pacific, brackets, USA, Inc. <laughs> <laughs> right? We don't have any problems with that domain name. OK. And then eventually, you went to service project. OK. So, um, so there turns out, turns out, luckily for me, blessing in disguise, there is a guy in Utah who owns customware.com who had registered the name since 1978. I don't know how he registered the name, but it was there. So that gave me a good heed to you know, change the company name. Uh, not only that, this is right now. He's, he does website design. So if anybody <laughs> needs websites. <laughs> Just saying, it's all there. It's mobile compatible. I think it works. It's OK. So this, so we had this logo, you know. I, I when I, I engaged somebody for this, I was like, "Don't make it blue. Don't, just make it look different than everything else." So we came up with green, which turned into you know swamp green internally. Um, here's a funny one. So we back in 2006, we we actually wanted to give the company a look and feel, and we had a, a company generate all of these concepts. So they came in very professionally with all these boards. And uh, some of them were the typical buildings, shapes, 
the multiracial handshakes, and, and there was a theme with cartoons. And what I did is I grabbed all of my competitor logos and put them on each of those designs, and I picked the one that looked the worst with the competitor logos on it. And that was not, not necessarily the sheep, but it was cartoons, because we had all different type of cartoons. And this is back in 2006, 2007. So now it seems everybody has cartoons, right? But the way we did that was to say, how do we create a brand that looked different than, than all the people that we felt we were competing with? And as we, as we moved along, my designer uh, had this rocket, uh, because we, were, we had made an acquisition of one of our platforms, and we were gonna rename the company to Service Rocket, so finally something that made sense, and we had a .com. And he said, great, I've got this rocket. My previous client didn't like it, would you like it? So, so we took it, and uh, it's like, can we, can we lose the green guy and, and go from there? So, that's, uh, so during the transition, we, we were using CustomWay with this, and then we eventually did that. Um, one of the things that, that we were always short on budget being bootstrapped, so we came out with these great t-shirts. We copied Zendesk, thank you, Zach, who had these great, great t-shirts that I just loved, and uh, we, we put the rocket there. We put no name because we were gonna change the name of the company. So some of us still have customer at the back of our, our T-shirts. And the idea of keeping them consistent was that all of our social media photos for the last six years all look the same. So we now have this thing where we sponsor kids' sports groups, and we give all the kids T-shirts, and everyone now wants the, the shirt. And so that was a great $9 brand for us to, uh, to make work. So as a company, I flew around to all of our offices during this, this time of, of trying to create the culture and, and defined all of our values, and, and they're up here. Um, and at the moment, we're now 230 employees, uh, full-time, uh, across four locations, and we have one culture for the company. So we started in Sydney. We opened up in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, with one person in a Starbucks. Uh, in, in 2009, I moved my family to Palo Alto, and it was just us, and we started there. And in 2013, we wanted to go 24-7 with people awake. So we said, Malaysia's working well. Let's find something 12 hours away. And that put us either in Western Europe or in Latin America. And we did the research. And I, over a summer break, we flew down for three months in, in Chile, and we decided that that was the place to be. And so, uh, so we set up there. But importantly, we have one global culture, and our teams span and spread all of these different offices. So it's been a remarkable experience, and something that I really enjoy and recharges me every time I go to a different office. It's the same culture, same family, but I get time away from what I was doing, get to connect and get to reflect and bring things together. But you can see the diversity in the team. Okay. Let's see. Um, <clears throat> And, and culturally, I just th think for us, there are, there are some special things that, that happen. Um, this is our Chilean team in Santiago that all of a sudden picked a Beatles song, and they videoed themselves singing the Beatles song and sent it out to all the different offices. So we have this competition going between us to either lip sync or, or play music. Okay, so uh, services, what the hell, right? Who loves consulting? There are some consultants here, <laughs> right? Um, and so it was always interesting, hey, you've created a, a software business or a technology business and you do services, what? You know, and so anytime I was talking to a, a, a VC or somebody, as soon as I mentioned the word, oh yeah, and we do some services, 
It's like, I, I gotta go now, right? It's a, a big, dirty word. But it was always core to me because, uh, especially my time at Boland in, in engineering and in, in systems engineering and sales engineering, I could always interpret what the, the text would say and I could talk to the customers and explain things. There's always this bridge between saying how could I do that uh, and, and how do we make things work. And so uh, in trying to get software adopted, right, th there is an element of service that is needed but think of the service as an outcome, not necessarily as an army of consultants from a big five consultancy that need to come through. So if we go to our, our simplest way, all of us have iPhones here, right? All of us install apps, but we're, we're also, we have two hats, we're the end user and we are the administrator, right? Because we choose what apps that we ask the admin to put on, and when we don't like them, we delete them. And we set them up, and we're, we're everything in one. And if we make a bad decision, we don't tell everybody, right? We might say that app's crap, but that's fine. And so if I was going to write a, a mobile app and deploy it to 100,000 users inside of my retail chain, would I do any kind of rollout planning or training? Right? It might just be a cheat sheet. It might be something really small. But there's some element that's needed for change and help to help guide the users to where they need to be. So. We have a bank of about a thousand questions, really depending on what type of software you have uh, and what products you're trying to do. So the, the things you should think about. So when when uh, the previous talk we we're talking about using the product after launch, that's the part that we we focus on. Right? And uh, I encourage you to think about these and think about some of the other 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 uh, questions or other metrics or or items because it's not just about hey the customer bought our software and they went away. Right. So, uh, in in the new world, right, we know that you know only one in seven software projects are are uh, successful, and half of them are, are not really that effective. So there's a lot of software. It's a lot less than the than the shelfware we used to have, but there's a lot of software that just sits there idle and and doesn't do anything. So, bringing this back to something that we we really had to do, is we had a uh, a problem with Atlassian and that a number of customers wanted training, and they're all in the US, and this is back in 2004, and we're based in Sydney, Australia, right? And so uh, Scott had said, hey, can you just train these guys for us? I was like, great. And we were used, back then, training was five days or three days in a classroom with those big monitors, right? Beige, yeah. And so we were thinking about, well, how do we, how do we give these customers training, and how do we learn what they want to get from training? Right? And there are nuances in this. And so has everybody seen this, this chart before and read this book before, or the series of books? Yeah? Okay, if you haven't, please do that. But the idea here is you, you need to cross the chasm, and I guess if I go back to the Jira case, the, the geek who is running his own technical development team that has downloaded Jira and installed it and sent it out to his group does not need training does not need consulting, doesn't need any kind of, he's provided the service work, he or she, right? What we focused on doing was what I'll call, I guess, the B-grade person in that company who says, what are you doing? Oh, I'd like to use that as well. And so they ask the alpha geek, hey, what are you doing, and what does the alpha geek do? Because we all know this person, right? They just avoid them. Right? 
I'm busy, I'm running my team, you go and figure it out for yourself. So we created training offerings that the alpha geek could refer the B grader to. Go and do the training that's there. And that was awesome for sales because the orders just came in. And the trainers didn't go in expecting to be bombarded by someone who knew more than them. But it was actually somebody who was receptive to, hey, I need to learn what this Jira thing is so I can roll it out to my team. See, and our goal, our goal was to, was to try and get up here, right? So if your, your product's easy to install, that's great. Right? You don't necessarily want to train your early adopters because they'll train themselves. Right? Actually, if you need to train your early adopters, you have a bigger problem. Right? So what we were doing is just analyzing the types of people and the personas of, it's not even the buying persona, it's the usage persona of the software. Right? So if less than half of us are analyzing our buying personas, I don't know how to get metrics on who's analyzing our user personas you know, after that. right? Um, and even this is like the same kind of user, but at a different stage of their career. And we also knew that we had this uh, short time frame because what does an alpha geek do every year or every two years? Ch changes technologies or changes jobs or does something different. So it was like, wow, we can get them to basically spread all these seeds. And if we follow through with everything they need to refer to, that's adoption. Right? Now, this model isn't going to work for everybody, but it's just an example of how to think about adoption, not just, well, there's some training, go and do it. Right? Okay. So the way to think of it, it's also a concept in this book, is the concept of core product and, and whole product. Right? And the core product is, is what comes out of your engineering group, and the whole product is everything else that's needed to make it work as a solution, to cross that chasm. And for each of us, that's going to be very different, right? For some things, it's heavy amount of support. Some things are some kind of hardware, God forbid. But I guess if you're square, you need some kind of hardware piece that goes with it, right? Um, for a lot of us, it's, it's trying to answer some of those questions so that customers use some of those other features. Some of it might even be in product. Some of it may be out of product. We came up with a, a concept of a 45-minute jam session training course, that's what we called it. And what can you learn in one hour? A little bit? Yeah? What, what's the goal of doing a one hour overview of, of Jira and the Atlassian stack? Our goal was we had the persona of maybe, the B, maybe, maybe multiple B graders trying to convince their manager that they should use this as a platform. And we made things 45 minutes. So 40 minutes plus some questions, so we can go up to an hour. And the whole pitch was, grab your teams, grab some pizza, get them in a room, we'll cover it all off. Right? And our goal there was to get through the, the, uh, you know, the senior manager to the approver persona, right? to get rid of that little bit of friction. Because we knew if we get rid of that bit of friction, what does that do for the platform? Right? Spreads it out even further. So. Uh, also think about when, when you're trying to get your products spread in an enterprise, where are the different pieces where they get stuck? That offering actually came from customer feedback. So as an example, uh, we had one customer who called us in for a demo, 
and I hate this, right? Because a customer calls you in and they say, we want to see this, this, this you know, do my job for me as pre-sales, right? And it very rarely works. So what's interesting is that a customer going to a training course and hearing from an instructor versus hearing from a pre-sales guy, even if it's the same guy, is very different, right? It's an official communication, and, and it's very funny. People go to training, and they go in as students, right? They go into a pre-sale cycle as the aggressive buyer, right? So understand some of that. Um, <clears throat> so the way I think about software adoption is, is all about, you know, kind of ponds. My mum was a gardener, and every time we used to go to the nursery, we used to play in the section where they had the ponds, and we used to block the cascades to grab all the plants and block them, right? Empty it out. And so the way I think about this is kind of the opposite, where you let the, the top cascade fill up, and then you, the goal of software adoption is to remove that friction to get to the next one, right? Or it's almost like you're filling up a glass of water, then you go to a bucket, then you go to a bathtub, then you go to a swimming pool. So what you don't want to do is have armies of consultants try and do all that for customers. But what you want to do is identify those different friction points and give the end users the tools to smash them down. Right? So if you think about it that way, it's like, where is the next bottleneck? And, and let the organizational momentum kind of you know, push that through for you. OK, IBM, has everyone seen this before? Yep. Yeah? I, I think it needs updating. Yeah? I think nothing happens until someone learns something, right? Because right now we're selling software where people are buying it. They're buying it once they think they've make, they're making an educated decision about what they're buying. So the content that you're using for learning of your products is actually more and more important. So training used to be thought of as purely a post-sale item. Hey, we sell, it goes over to those guys, they do training, I don't, I don't care. Right? Or our product's so simple, we don't need training. If your product is, is so simple that you don't need training, create something for the, for the purchase cycle. Right? Create something for the B and the C graders in the organization. The, the early adopter isn't going to do training anyway. They're probably going to write the training for you. But if you think about it, you, you we're almost reversing the cycle here. Great learning content also makes great SEO content. Right? It's high quality content. Right? And it's very hard for your competitors to rip off specific training about your products. Right? So do I get a laugh? That's a thumbs up? Excellent, Dave. Excellent. <laughs> okay. So, so think about those cycles reversed. And the more people that you're educating in the market, they'll become buyers. They'll work through the funnel. And they'll know about your software. Not only will they know about your software, when someone looks over their shoulders and says, what is that? They can push them to the same training and reuse it over and over. How many of us try and, try and train up support and customer success staff and other people in the organization, and it takes them so long to learn what the hell the product does? Right? Again, you get reuse out of this stuff if you do it right. So I'm a, a big advocate for that. OK, so the idea is we want, we want to turn from spring to waterfall, but we want to use gravity to make all of that happen. Right? So, uh, prior to IPO, we handed the Atlassian training department back to Atlassian to run. Uh, by that stage, we had taught over 50,000 students how to use the products. And if you go back to 2003, when we were talking about that, who really needs training to, to log a bug? Right? 
So something as simple as that. Um, there are also large enterprise customers who will not buy products that don't have training. Right? And when you're dealing with, a, with a, a model where you might want customers to just buy from your website without you having to sell it, you're not going to know about that. So. <clears throat> okay. So the other, the other thought here is, is again, you know, why give them fish when you can teach them how to fish? Right? So that's our mindset as we're applying to software adoption. And so that goes with training, support, and some of the other deployment services that we do. Um, and the way I think about support is support's really in two categories. A, you've got a technical bug or a crisis that's happened. The rest of it is just training after you need it, right? That's right. So, um, <clears throat> whereas, you know, you could have done it beforehand. Um, so, pausing for a second and moving along to a, a, a different tangent of what I did as I built the business is that um, I initially put there that I was lazy, but I, I guess I, I like being pushed as, as much as I can and not leaving anything on the table. And so, I, I, as I was building the company, as, a, as an owner, founder, CEO, um, I, I think we, we can have a tendency to, to kind of get burnt out. And so what I did is I created a board. Right? So I went out and I sought out great board members who could add value to the business, uh, who routinely uh, kick my ass. And I genuinely fear when I go to a, a board meeting, I have a board meeting coming up, I fear those board meetings. Right? And so, um, kind of put that out there for those that are, are self-funded or, or smaller companies may not have funding, may not have had a board member forced upon you. Um, you can actually go and create your own board, right? And so, uh, the board that I have, I actually have a VC on my board, right? And uh, what, what he does for us is give us the perspective as if we were a funded company and the types of things that we need to be looking for and looking out for. Um, and aggressively pushes us as if we were funded, but we can take that on and work out how do we adapt it to our business. So the other thing that it does, it gives us insights into what a funded company would be so that at the point in time when we, we may want to make that choice, we already kind of know what happens. And we already have the board structure and the discipline set up. It takes a long time to build the organization to be able to create board packs, right? So just getting the whole team to get all the updates and everything ready on a monthly rhythm makes us better as a company and keeps us more aligned. I would hate to think of doing that at the same time as having raised money and introducing a whole new set of board members and trying to get all that going. So, uh, but it's been instrumental for us. <clears throat> okay, uh, and, in, and in building uh, multiple offices around the world, um, I have this test that we do at the end which is uh, a livable test. So we'll only open up an office in a location where we could live. And that's because as a, as a CEO, wherever you have an office, you may need to be there for an extended amount of time, right? And so when we were looking for Santiago, as an example, um, I assembled a team. I took two people from our Malaysian office and moved them to Santiago in an apartment. And their job was, their task was to, can you work effectively from here 12 hours away from your team and work with US clients in our US office. I, I found a, uh, a local, or a, a relatively local entrepreneur from another uh, Latin country, and his job was to kind of do all the, the local negotiating and navigating of, of just the government departments and working things out. And then I went down there with my wife and three kids for three months. And my wife had the task of get around Santiago with the three kids at that stage who were nine, 
three and six, something like that. Um, and your job is to just get around the city and feel safe. Because if you don't feel safe getting around there, how can we send our employees there? Right? And so at the end of the three months, we went through all those checks as well as some other business items, and, and we were good. And so we set up in, in Santiago in 2013. Uh, there is a website that we use to, to help guide the decision, and it's called doingbusiness.org, O-R-G. And what it does, it ranks every country in the world. It's from the World Bank, and it ranks them on how easy is it to open up a bank account, get electricity, corruption, all the different metrics. It's amazing. The data is crazy. Um, so what we, we created a short list off that. And the second thing we, we did is we hate connecting flights. So every one of our offices is a direct flight from Sydney. Uh, and even though I don't live there anymore, it's, it, it's good to know that you don't have to stop. And if you need to have a stopover, you can always go to Sydney. Right? So Santiago has a great you know, non-stop flight to Sydney. Um, so both uh, Malaysia and, and Santiago have been very successful for us, but they're not common locations that you think of for setting up offices. Like who else here has an office in, in Santiago and Kuala Lumpur? Right? Um, so we specifically chose countries that MBA students would not pick, right? So MBA would tell you to go to India, China, Brazil. They were like, Brazil, Brazil, Brazil. I'm like, why would I go in Brazil and be a small minnow in a huge pond with all these multinationals when I can go to somewhere with a 20 million population and I can get full-page newspaper coverage that we're opening up an office, right? And when we opened in Malaysia, we got on TV, <laughs> right? So now our PR budgets were not huge. So uh, think about when you're, when you're trying to open up. Like we could never do that in China or Brazil or, or other places. Right? So, so it's better to be the, the bigger fish in a smaller pond uh, for that. <clears throat> so uh, along the way, uh, we've actually built some products. So this has been, I had hair when we started. And one of the, one of the hardest things to do for a services company is to build product, right? Because you're used to just solving problems for everybody. Um, and uh, we have a VP of product who takes a lot of that stress away from me. Um, but the way I think about it, uh, as well as all the lessons that have gone through, my job as a CEO is to set the destination for where we're going and align all the customers with that destination. Our, our product management team, their goal is to lay the tracks. And we have a mantra in our company right now is that the engineering train must not stop. The worst thing you can do for a train, they don't change directions very well, they don't start and stop very well. So, and, and this metaphor we're using throughout the whole company so that as different customers come in wanting to change, it's like, hey, this is how we think about things. So if you want the destination over here, the train isn't going to go there. Right? Um, it, it was, it's been very hard for us to, to build product. Um, right now we have it going really well. Um, we had a whole series of open source components on the Atlassian stack that we commercialized, and that's how we built product uh, initially and built our engineering team. Um, and that was a, a, a really fun experience to go from how do you manage something that has 100,000 downloads and start charging for it. Right? Um, <clears throat> but I can tell you that using consultants who are on the bench and have spare time to do engineering is not a good way to do it. Right? I'm sure you know that. Okay. Uh, another another uh, saying we have internally is that selling doesn't always help, but helping sells. Right? And so our, our team has a podcast, which they are just aligning more and more uh, customers and people who talk about how do, you, how do you sell by helping remove friction? 
Uh, and um, so check that out, and if you, if you also want to be a part of that, let us know. <clears throat> and when we look at professional services, right, and if I say that word, consulting, professional services, everyone cringes, right? The way to think about it in this world is that we want to be the best pit crew for the drivers, right? The customer is the best driver. Right? It's the most scalable way is to get the customer to be the driver. Don't be a backseat driver. <laughs> right? But you want to make sure that whether it's through automation, through your product, or through smart services that are scalable in your support team, that you are the best pit crew. Right? That you're checking in with your customers, changing the tires, tweaking the aerodynamics, doing the things that you need to do. Right? So a lot of the services that we work with with our enterprise customers or our um, software companies for are helping them design these types of things right? and helping them roll them out in a scalable manner so that one team in support can service thousands of customers right? and keep, keep the cars moving and keep them optimized. Right? Uh, also, being able to check in with customers on a regular basis. A lot of this goes under, it's probably one, one level deeper than what's customer success. Right? A lot of customer success these days is kind of nagging, are you going to renew, are you going to renew, yes or no, if not, I'm going to throw a big flag and panic, right? Whereas the approach here is, hey, we're going to tune the car, right? Oh, the driver's gone, oh, there's a problem, right? Uh, and if it's a, a really important customer, how do you either fill in and help them drive a little bit or, or flag that they can get someone driving? Oh, wow, we need someone to drive, they don't have a license, wow, we have driver education here, quick, let's get someone through so they can get through and get, in, get into the car and keep the race going, right? These are the types of things that are very hard to do when the customer sends you an email saying, we've chosen not to renew. At that stage, it's too late, right? The race is gone, it's lost. So think about, for your products, uh, how do you create such, a, such, a, such an offering, right? That's not intrusive. If I'm a race car driver, I want the best pit crew, right? Put the customer in, in, in the glory, in the lights, right? Because that's, that's what they like. Um, but yeah, don't be the backseat driver. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so the other thing that we've observed over time working in many different, uh, with many different partners and, and software companies is to really, really nurture, nurture the partner ecosystem. Now, in, in previous decades, right, the Microsoft partnerships and the Oracle partnerships, partners are a dime a dozen. Right now, anyone, any of your partners can go and create their own software, right? In six months, they can get to an amazing amount of ARR, right? I'm so jealous, <laughs> right? So the important thing here is to be aware of what's happening in the market. So if you have partners that you're working with, make sure that you nurture them and use their, use their brain cycles and allow them to innovate so they can win, right, if you do have partners. So the last thing you want to do is have partners and, and kind of not treat them well. So. Uh, and, and finally, to wrap up, uh, I think mentorship has been a really big uh, chain or a really big um, uh, stepping stone or, or thing for me. And I've had a lot of mentors in, in various different organizations along the way. And, and uh, in terms of giving back, uh, I also mentor a whole bunch of students and accelerators as well. But there's nothing better than having a, a bunch of mentors that you work with that can help bounce ideas off you. Um, but also make sure that you give back along the way, right? There are a lot of other businesses, a lot of other young people in the world that are building companies that can leverage the knowledge that we have. So this young chap was, was building a nursing business. Uh, 
And in one of our EO events, I, I managed to get him uh, on stage uh, with Magic Johnson, right? And he, he asked Magic Johnson some questions. And uh, in front of everybody, Magic Johnson said, I'll take you on as a mentor, and gave me his phone number in front of everybody. So that was one of, one of, a great day in my life. Nothing to do with my company, right? Okay. So I'd like to thank you, and I think we've got 10 or 15. I'm, I'm in between everyone and Bia. So. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, here we go. Questions? Oh, yeah, which is the real one? <laughs> okay, hands in the air. Hi. Right up here. Hi, Rob. I'm Richard. Hey, thanks for a great talk. Um, I also have a team in South America, but in neighboring Argentina. Okay. You mentioned that Who it's won the Copa America? Sorry? Yeah. <laughs> um, Twice. In, in, in more fun Argentina, I must say. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned that it's not uncommon for bootstrapped entrepreneurs to burn out, and that this was one of the reasons why um, you wanted to have a board. Can you speak a little bit more about that decision and, and how that helped you not get burnt out? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, well, for, for me, a, a big part is I don't know what I don't know, right? I, I went back home to get married and taught a training course and needed to build someone. That's how I created the company. So, um, and, and there are times, right, all of us go through that pendulum of like, wow, and oh, shit, right? Um, and ha having a board and, and people that have done things before or seen a lot of things, like my chairman was a partner at PwC for 30 years. Mm -hmm. He's seen a lot of stuff. And so when we wanted to flip the company internationally and do all this stuff, it was great to have that. But actually, as a, as a mentor, when I go to Sydney, we hike together and he, you know, we just chat and uh, you know, have dinner at his house with his family. And for, for me, it's connecting more at that level. Okay. And that, that helps me navigate and put things in perspective. A quick follow-up question. Yeah. Um, are you sleeping better now with that board? Um, I'm not sleeping, but it's not because of the board. <laughs> <laughs> What keeps you awake at night? What keeps me awake? Yeah. Um, oh man, everything. If it's not the board, I mean. That yeah. No, I, I think right now we 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 have some software adoption, not not necessarily business challenges, but they're challenges in like, wow, how do we go through this? But it, they're for companies that are extremely huge, mm. and so that then becomes the business challenge to say, wow, we could do that. Oh my God, we would need ten times what we have to be able to do that. Mm. So. Those are good things to lose sleep on, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Is there one up here? Has Atlassian tried to buy you, by the way? You can ask Peldy that. He's got, I, don't have, I don't have a Peldy story. I don't have a Peldy story. So, yeah. Over here. Hey, Rob. Thanks for the talk um, over here. Hey. Always good to hear from a, a professional services uh, owner, company owner at Business of Software. Mark, I think Mickey Trafton was maybe the last one like five years ago, but anyway, it's product companies everywhere, so thanks for coming. <laughs> so um, as someone who's trying to convert a pro services company to a more of a product revenue company, um, that's, I'm really curious about that. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've productized that pro services revenue? I think you mentioned like maybe some Atlassian uh, integrations or customizations. Can yeah. you expand on that? Yeah, so we had, I, I've, we've probably made four or five acquisitions in, in our time. A lot of them really small, right? So in, in, the, in the Atlassian ecosystem, there are a lot of add-on vendors who make add-ons, and some of them get tired and bored. And so we, we picked up a few of those things. 
and some of them were, were used a lot. And so we, we commercialized them. And, and um, the only pushback we had was community members who previously, who get their Atlassian licenses for free and said, hey, can we, you know, oh my god, I don't pay for Jira. Why do I have to pay for this? I'm like, well, OK, we'll give it to you. So, um, and those, those are doing remarkably well. Um, the one thing that do, you, you have to separate the services team from the engineering team. Have to do that. You can't have any people, well, in my spare time, I'm going to, it's like, no, there is no. There is no in my spare time can I contribute to ruining the code, right? <laughs> so it's just like me. I can't write code and check it in. So I think the biggest thing is doing that. We made a larger acquisition of our, our learning platform called LearnDot. So we run the online training for companies like you know, Puppet and Docker and a whole bunch of others on this platform. Um, we actually took a bank loan to make that acquisition. <laughs> right? I think HSBC funded a bank loan for us to make an acquisition of, a, of software. They do a lot of dodgy deals in South America, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> Which is kind of weird, right? Uh, and so, but, but what that made us do was like, oh my god, we just borrowed money to do this, well, we better put the right resources into it, not just spare time. So there's a, there's a mental, you know, very similar to the story previously, which is like, no, we're going to cut this off and, and, and bet on it. Um, for me, our, our goal as a company isn't whether it's software or services. It's about the outcome of software adoption. And so that's our product to market is software adoption. And so we do need some services and so forth. We're at, we're at like 50% 50, 50 subscription-based and 50 not as a whole. Susan, you had a question? Yeah. I'm curious, uh, how many products are you building, and what's the size of your dev team? Uh, so, we, we have, so we have a whole bunch of add-ons. I think there's about eight or 10 of them. And then we have our, our learning platform. Uh, the size of our whole product group is about 50 people out of 230. So it's quite sizable. So basically, every, every bit of profit that we've made since the start, everything has gone into building this team. Thanks for a great talk. I was wondering if you could put yourself in your, in, in, in your, um, in your partner's shoes for a minute. Like, like Laura, I think many of us are in the product business because we so desperately don't want to be in the services business. Yeah. Um, and so the notion of being able to partner to accomplish the services part, because like you said, when you're talking about like you know larger customers who really want training if they're ever going to buy your product, even though the training isn't necessarily what you want to be doing as a company. How should a product company go about talking or try to partner in order to provide that service to their customers? So if, if I'm in that stage and we have a couple of partners, what I'm having been through the experience myself, right? Uh, I, I think the natural thought is to be like, I'm going to have lots of partners so I can choose between them all. And, and when you're a small company, especially in this market, knowing that any of your partners can turn around and become a software company in six months, right? Then, you, you, what, as I said in the slide there, you want, to, you want to pick them and engage them and allow them to innovate and allow them to win and use their, use, you know, there is a portion of my brain that has to be on new shiny stuff, right? And so what I do is I will break away from the day-to-day -day regardless of what it is and I will go and pursue new opportunities that are just different because that's, that's just how I function. If, if I'm going to do the same mundane stuff, I don't like doing it. Um, and so some of our partners know that and so, they kind of like, okay, you know, Rob, Rob's an interesting guy. Let, let's just bring him in and see what he sees. So that, you know, and we've done it a number of times with a number of partners where we've gone in, and 
found an opportunity that no one could see, and then they let us run with it for a year or two, and then like, great, let's productize it and give it to the other 400 partners so everyone can do it. But there's enough of a runway where it makes sense for us to want to do it. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org. Thank you.